Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast, powered by the Henderson Brewing Company, a locally owned, award-winning neighborhood brewery that celebrates Toronto's stories and culture. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is our Canadian ambassador to the United Nations, Mr. Bob Ray. Bob is a diplomat, lawyer, negotiator, and former politician who previously served from 1990 to 1995 as a 21st Premier of Ontario. Over a 35-year political career from 1978 to 2013, Bob has served as the leader of both the provincial NDP and the federal Liberal Party. Most significantly for listeners of the Toronto Legends podcast, he was elected 11 times representing various Toronto ridings in both the federal and provincial parliaments. And most significantly for me personally, Bob Ray has been designated by my late father as the second smartest man in Canada. (laughs) Welcome... Welcome, Bob, to Toronto Legends. I really appreciate you joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm fine. I'm in New York uh, in our little sound studio here. We do uh, our video podcasts. We do them. This room was named before I got here, was named in honor of Stephen Lewis. So I'm speaking to you from the Stephen Lewis room. As you know, Stephen Lewis was my predecessor here and not only as leader of the NDP, but also as ambassador to to the UN. Excellent. Well, I would like to ask about, if I may, your family. I understand that these days you're enjoying not only your children, but your grandchildren. How is everyone doing? We're all doing great. Um, Arlene and I are here in New York, uh, but all of our families in Toronto. Uh, our kids all grew up in the city and uh, our grandchildren are all there. So we, we try to go back uh, as, you know, once a month or so and get to see them. And uh, it's great. It's, it's, it's wonderful to see the kids growing up and uh, everybody doing well. It's wonderful. How would you describe the difference between the roles of dad and granddad? And of course, I want to ask whether they call you Gramps or Pop Pop or Grand Dude. They call me Papa. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I'm quite happy with that, uh, as opposed to many other things I've been called by people living in Toronto and elsewhere. <laughs> but it's good. No, it, it's, it's great. And uh, I find being a grandpa is great. I mean, I love... Uh, uh, the lack of really ultimately the lack of any responsibility, <laughs> but also just wonderful to see kids, you know, learning how to read, growing up, just becoming themselves, and uh, it's just great to see the little little personalities growing and, and thriving. It's it's wonderful. It's a great experience. Well, just fabulous for you. Let's please go all the way back. Get the Bob Ray story. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Uh, I was born in Ottawa um, my, in 1948. My dad was uh, a, a diplomat, a federal public servant. He worked for what was at that time called the Department of External Affairs. My mom was born, he was born in Hamilton, uh, although he spent his high school and university years in Toronto. Um, I, uh, my mom was born in England, and she met my dad when he was doing graduate work in in London in the in the 1930s, they, she came. They got married just before the war started, and or just actually just after the like three days after the war started, and uh, he joined the Department of External Affairs in in the spring of 1940. So we right away after I was born, about a few months later, we went to London, and I spent my first my first three or four years in London. Then we came back to Canada, and then uh, I. When I first was in school, I had a, in the kindergarten, I had an English accent for about a day, I think, <laughs> until it was sort of beaten out of me by, by, by the other kids in Ottawa. <laughs> Didn't take long for me to lose that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we, the next posting was we, we went to Washington. And I lived there for six years and uh, went through uh, primary school and uh, junior high school in Washington, D.C., uh, and then we moved again. We went to Geneva, where I went to the international school, did all my uh, high school there, which was a great experience, and then came back to go to U of T. And I mention all this because I really didn't discover Toronto uh, until I came back as, a, as an undergrad at U of T in uh, 1966. Well, as you note, you graduated with honors from University College at University of Toronto, where you also received your law degree. Michael Ignatieff, who later became your rival for the Liberal Party, was your roommate at one time. Yes, well, Mike and I, Mike and I, very similar upbringings. His dad was also a diplomat, and in fact, my our parents were very close friends. And 
uh, knew each other very well. And Mike and I met in, uh, I guess we really met in university. We knew each other a little bit, but uh, we, we met there and we became roommates uh, our last year, uh, our fourth year in, in, uh, in 68, 69, and, and remained friends. And, and yes, we, we, were, <laughs> we were rivals uh, for the leadership, but that happens. Um, not unusual, I don't think, and and uh, we work together. Uh, and he's now living in Europe, doing uh, we're involved with the uh, Central European University, and I'm back at it here in diplomacy, which is not really where I expected to end up when I <laughs> when I when I was uh, in politics. But I'm more than happy to be doing it. It's a great honor. Absolutely, and you got such a great story. We're going to cover all those areas, Bob. You first became involved in politics volunteering on Pierre Trudeau's 1968 Liberal Leadership Campaign. You later worked on Charles Katia's campaign in the 68 federal election. What drew you to wanting to get involved in politics? Well, it was kind of natural, uh, Andrew. I, I had always been interested in politics and, and history from an early age. I mean, like, just sort of, you know, when I, I remember when we moved to Washington, I was eight and uh, I was kind of a nerdy kid, and I, I, I memorized the names of all the vice presidents of the United States, not the presidents. I sort, no. of, I sort of would know them, but I mean, you know, it was the vice presidents. And if you said to me, now, could I do it? I said, I, I couldn't possibly repeat that. It was sort of like a party trick that I would do for my, for, for my dad and mom. And it was sort of funny to figure out who, the, who was Hannibal Hamlin and all these guys who were vice presidents. It was crazy. But it was very, uh, it just came naturally to me. So when I was in university, uh, was involved, I wouldn't say really heavily, but sort of peripherally in Pierre Trudeau's leadership campaign and uh, attended the convention in Ottawa where he was elected leader and then uh, went to work when he called the election, went to work uh, for Charles Katcha, uh, who had been a, an alderman in the city uh, or councillor, as we would now say, uh, and Charles was a, was a was a wonderful man. He he died far too young. He was very very dedicated, talented, thoughtful uh, man. Very keen environmentalist before a lot of people knew even what that was. Uh, and I I really enjoyed working on his, his his campaign. And I learned a lot about campaigning from watching what how he did it, and then how many other people who've influenced me on, on the, the tricks of the trade and, and how, how, how you engage and, and how important campaigning is. I mean, I've been, as you pointed out, I, I was in 11, uh, 11 campaigns and two leadership campaigns, one of which I won and one of which I lost. But I always won in my riding campaigns. And I'm, I don't say when I say I, I would, you have to say we because it's, mm -hmm. you don't win as an individual, you win as a, as a part of a team. And the first riding I worked in was Davenport, which at that time was the west end of Toronto. Um, St. Clair was sort of went down the middle, and and um, it, it it went uh, quite far to far, quite far to the west uh, along the streetcar line on either side. And um, I was a canvas organizer, so I helped I helped organize all the people who were out there knocking on doors. And before we go further with your political career, I do want to talk a little more about your educational career, because as a result of your strong student record at U of T, you were awarded a Rhodes Scholarship to the University of Oxford, where I learned that you completed a Bachelor of Philosophy, a thesis that criticized the cultural imperialism of early Fabian socialists in the United Kingdom. Mr. Ray, please note, I have, I have come prepared to debate you on this today. I hope you kept all your notes. I definitely kept all my notes. Uh, the, I took a degree which was uh, it's sort of like a unique, at that time was a unique Oxford degree uh, because you did a thesis, uh, but you also did a lot of coursework. So we did, uh, we, we had to take uh, five exams at the end of two years uh, in political theory and, uh, and political institutions, as we called it. Um, and I was a student at the same college as uh, Boris Johnson, but I neither one of us mentions the fact that we have that in common. <laughs> yeah, I see. I, I, I did want Toronto, it would be called Beloyal College, but in, <laughs> but in Oxford, it's known as Paleo College because that's how it's spelled. 
It's all about the accents. I, I did want to ask how your time as a student in Britain influenced your interest in social justice, because, of course, upon your return to Canada, you joined the Social Democratic NDP Party. You worked in labor law during the mid-70s. How was the influence from your days in Britain? Well, I mean, I guess I'd have to say that going part of my heritage, right? My mother's English, we have a large family in England. I felt very much at home in in, uh, in England. I still do in, in in many ways. I do think that there are some things that I about England that I learned that I that I felt quite strongly about. Um, that it's it's very much a uh, it's still a society that's that's based on hierarchy to 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 much too great a degree than I think any North American or any Canadian would be comfortable with. And I. I saw that when I was a student uh, at Oxford. I, I, went, I went on from Oxford to become a community worker in North London and uh, was very much involved in uh, helping people who were homeless and working for, for a year in, 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 in that. And I really, really enjoyed it. And that's what led me to feel I, well, I had to make a decision as I was I going to stay in England or was I going to come back to Canada? And um, I felt that if I stayed in England, I'd always be uh, a, a bit of an outsider, uh, and felt that even though I hadn't lived, as I described to you, my the years I was in and out of the country, I I felt that I I had to kind of make uh, Canada my home, and I had to make a conscious decision that I would do that. So I I came back to U of T to go to law school and uh, did some teaching at U of T, and uh, did some a lot of legal aid as a student, and all of those things together I think influenced me certainly. My reading and and thinking about stuff affected it, but I think it was much more of just working with people and and uh, that brought me brought me around. And Stephen Lewis at that time was a leader of the NDP. I found him to be a great uh, a great inspiration, a great a great leader. Um, and I was working in the field of labor law. Um, I did some work for the United Steel Workers Union uh, and some teaching with them for them. Did some teaching in the labor movement. Uh, summer courses and so on for for uh, union leaders and and for union activists. And it was a it was a, a fascinating fascinating early career. I really enjoyed it. And your jump into Toronto politics, so to speak, was you were first elected to the House of Commons of Canada in a 1978 by election in what was then the Toronto Riding of Broadview. In the 1979 federal election, you won a full term representing the renamed riding of Broadview Greenwood, and you subsequently gained national prominence as the NDP's finance critic. But I want to draw attention to 1980, which was a huge year for you. You were elected to our federal parliament for a third time, and equally, if not more significantly, married Arlene Purley days later. Now, Arlene had also been a student at U of T. Is this where you first met? We met at the uh, varsity office, uh, the old build, varsity building, which has since been torn down and replaced by the, the new Rotman building, uh, with the old varsity building right next to uh, the Newman Center on the corner of uh, Harvard and St. George Street. Yep. Uh, and we both worked at the varsity. She was, uh, she was, a, she worked, she was a drama student, and um, she uh, was writing about the theater and stuff, and, and uh, I was a... I was the book review editor, uh, so I I, uh, I saw her there, and we we connected, but we did not actually become a uh, become an item, as it were, uh, because we were both involved with other people. Um, but it was only when I came back to to uh, to Canada four four years later that um, I phoned her up. This is before the internet, no emails or WhatsApp or chats yeah. or anything. I just phoned her up and said, it's me, you want to go out? And she, she laughed and said, yeah, but by that time, of course, she was going out with somebody else. So I had to wait my turn. So it took a while. So we, we actually started sort of knowing and connecting with each other in 1968, but we didn't actually get married until 1980. So okay. It was a, a long, long buildup. So. <laughs> and I don't want to put you on the spot, Bob, but by my calculations, this would be uh, the 42nd uh, anniversary this year. Well, it's easy for me to count because it's 1980, so I, I can get it. I can get it right. 42 in February, and we will be 43 coming up in next February. And uh, she, Darlene, was a very much a Toronto person. She grew up in Toronto. Her parents uh, had a travel agency and uh, Bathurst and Lawrence, and um, 
Uh, Arlene went to camp, uh, went to Bathurst Heights High School, um, and used to drive me crazy, and he still does. Uh, but we constantly be meeting people at you know market or events or whatever, and they say, oh, you know, I know your wife in high school. I knew you here and there, and I always felt that you know, I hadn't had that connection with Toronto as a as a kid. So I yeah. I, I missed out on something. The Toronto Legends podcast is powered by the Henderson Brewing Company, where you can try this month's limited edition beer, Amelia Red Hefeweizen inspired by Amelia Earhart's passion for flying that started right here in Toronto. Go to hendersonbrewing.com to order now, or visit their taproom and retail store at 128A Sterling Road, located along the West Toronto Rail Path. Henderson Brewing and the Toronto Legends Podcast, a great local partnership. Well, in your time moving forward, I do want to talk about being the Premier on October 1st, 1990. You were sworn in as the first and to date the only NDP Premier of Ontario. You also took the Intergovernmental Affairs Portfolio, giving yourself a direct voice in future constitutional negotiations. Bob, you were in power for 1,650 days. This is the longest term served by an Ontario Premier since the Second World War. You were also one of the few Ontario Premiers who could speak French. That time as being Premier of Ontario, what are your fondest kind of uh, recollections? Well, I mean, it was a, tur- it was a turbulent time. Uh, it was, I mean, I've said this before and, and, and be very open with you, Andrew. I nearly left politics after my brother died in 1989. Um, and Arlene's parents had been killed in a car accident couple of years before that and and I felt that I, was, many people were pressing me to run for the federal leadership and I decided not to do that and then I really had a had a period of time when I wondered whether I would whether I wanted to keep going um, and uh, Arlie and I talked about it a lot and, and I said well look at the end of this much rumination I, I felt okay I can't really leave the party now because it's too close to when an election might be happening um, we'll go through the election um, and try to get, you know, 30. I remember saying, I'm trying to get a million votes in 30 seats. Uh, and if we do that, then I can leave with my, my head high and, 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 and say goodbye. I, I felt that the uh, provincial politics was, a, was, was challenging for me personally. It, it didn't play to all my strengths as a, as a person. I, I, the process by which I decided to do it was was again it was a lot of internal thinking about was this what I really wanted to do but I felt a lot of pressure and obligation to to help out also frankly I preferred to live in Toronto than than to be commuting to Ottawa because we were starting a a young family Uh, all of which is to say when the election started I did not expect to win Mm. Uh, I had no reason to believe that we were going to win and so when the election ended I believed that we could win because obviously the polls were changing really really quick and to show you how quickly they changed, we went from being third in the polls uh, and about 25 points behind the Liberals uh, to David Peterson to being uh, well ahead. And we ended up being five points ahead of the Liberals and, 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 and getting uh, a majority, which was statistically uh, unlikely because we only got 37% of the vote, but we did because of all the splits and the little parties and everything else. And... Um, here we were. I, I remember it well. Uh, the night of September, September the sixth, nineteen ninety, we were just like saying, "Okay, um, it's 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 a new game here. It's a it's a new situation. Economy was in full blown recession. Uh, we were losing jobs uh, several thousand a week, and of course, by as soon as you take office, you you're you're the guy who's, who gets blamed for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and there you go." I would have to say the first year that I was in office was very difficult. Uh, I, I mean, personally, I found it challenging. As I got used to it and 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 began to accept the fact that it was going to be very hard to get reelected given the circumstances and some of the decisions that we'd made early on, that uh, I, I feel like I really enjoyed the job. I really appreciated the opportunity to serve. And particularly, I felt that given the difficulties that the provincial economy had, that leading a government that it actually cared about, really cared about what was happening to people and was really trying to figure out how do we save jobs and how do we make a difference. So 
there were a lot of things we did. I mean, Toronto, for example, the de Havilland factory, which was a, uh, the largest industrial employer in the city, was being threatened with closure because Boeing was, was, was selling. They wanted to get out of the business. And if they couldn't find a buyer, they were just going to shut it down. Uh, and uh, we really worked hard. I worked, spent a lot of time working with uh, industrial leaders, with union leaders, and uh, with financial people, trying to figure out what's the best way forward. And we got the federal government involved, uh, and uh, we managed to save the company and, and save a lot of jobs. And I've, I'm very proud of that. We did, we did that. I think, I think we calculated, and one of my officials told me, we've made 107 investments in companies that, that made a difference, and only two of them were not successful. So that's pretty good average. Mm-hmm. If you're in the if you're in the stock picking business, you'd say that's pretty good. <laughs> it's fantastic. So, yeah, I mean it's a good result. So I felt really proud of that. Uh, we also maintained a very strong social agenda on uh, equal pay and against discrimination. Very strong housing agenda. Built more houses in that five years than has ever been done before or since uh, in terms of affordable housing. No government has matched that record. Uh, in fact, most of the housing projects that were not quite finished were stopped by Mike, Mike Harris, and we, we ended up, and we also started the subways. People forget the Eglin subway that's still still under construction. <laughs> yep, still under construction. We started in, 90, in 92. We kept up, we, we, I mean, we kept going from 1990 on. David Peterson started the planning, and then we had some discussions with the city about which lines would be built. And then we, we accelerated the environmental assessment process, and we were underway in 93. And many people to this day don't remember that the the Eglinton subway would have been finished uh, by the end of the century. Um, admittedly, it would have to have been extended because it would, I'm convinced it would have been extremely successful. And mm-hmm. we also were continuing with the work on the subway that went up to York University. So I, I was... When we look at all the things we were able to do, and, and there are many others that, that uh, other people can think of, I was extremely proud of our, of our, uh, of our record. We had, to do, we had to do one big difficult thing, which was the social contract in the public sector. Mm-hmm. And I think that, in a sense, was probably what sealed my political fate, because it divided my party and it, it divided the labor movement. And, and I, I felt... Uh, that of all the choices that we faced, it was the better choice. Uh, but there are many people who disagreed and felt very strongly that uh, to to uh, bring in legislation that would that would uh, uh, reduce people's pay and, and, and ask people to take it, require people to take time off uh, and not get paid for it. Um, and and the, in the circumstances, we saved a lot of jobs. We we know that we saved many many thousands of jobs, but. Um, it's it's a hard thing to do, and it's a, it's a hard thing when when you're a leader of a of a of a social democratic party, and when you have the background that I had as a labor lawyer, it was it was a very painful thing to do, uh, mm. and I and and I I still feel <laughs> a sense of uh, of um, real sadness that that's what that's what was the the better the better among difficult choices. Well. Uh, I, I got two comments for you, if I may. One is just uh, to update you. I just went out last night, and if you can believe it, the Eglinton subway is still under heavy-duty construction and still causing chaos everywhere. <laughs> but more importantly, I, of everyone I ran into and mentioned that I'd be speaking you, to you today, they all said, you got to get him back. <laughs> you got to get Mr. Ray to come back and uh, run our province. So you are sorely missed. I want to fast-forward, if I may, to 2020, Armed with all your experience as a former premier, national party leader, you headed to New York City to take on the job that you are speaking to me from today. This was the exact same job your father, Saul Ray, once had. On July 6, 2020, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau named you Canadian ambassador to the United Nations. I want to ask you how surreal this is. Justin Trudeau's father had made the exact same request to serve our country to your father 50 years previously. And on top of that, by taking this role, you would now have worked on behalf of both father Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau and son Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I imagine this is both gratifying and, and emotional, I would imagine, for you. It was a very emotional lunch. Uh, the Prime Minister invited me to lunch at, uh, at his office. It was just before COVID. Uh, it, was in, it was in January. And um, uh, we were talking about 
various things, and I he'd he'd asked me to come in, and it was it was in the aftermath of the uh, of the shoot the shooting down of the of the plane uh, in Tehran, where many Canadians were killed, and I had done a, an an inquiry for the uh, for the Martin government on the shooting down of the of, or the bombing of the Air India flight in 1985, and. He was asked. He called me in with what I thought the reason he was wanted to speak to me was to talk about that that situation and that experience. And so we did. And then as as we were moving on, he said, "But before you go, and we we literally had people think, well, you know, what fancy restaurant did you go to, or you know, what did you, what kind of steak did you order?" <laughs> we had a couple of sandwiches, and we were just talking to each other across the table with a cup of coffee. Uh, this is the elegant life that we lead in the yes. public life. And uh, the, the prime minister said, uh, there's something else I want to ask you. And I said, okay, well, what's that? He said, um, we think there's going to be an opening in New York in, in the summer uh, for, the, you know, for the UN job. Um, would you be interested? And I have to confess, I choked up a bit because I was mm -hmm. not expecting it. Um, I mean, Mr. Trudeau had been there for quite a while. I'd done some things for him. I'd done work on the Rohingya refugee cases. I was doing a lot of work in private practice on indigenous human rights. I was teaching at the university. I was frankly not looking for another job uh, at that time. And uh, he said, I think, you know, we, I, I've really been thinking about it and, and uh, I think you'd be great at it. And I think it would be, it would be wonderful if you could accept it. And without hesitating, I said, I accept. He said, don't you want to talk to Arlene? I said, She'll understand, we, you know, she'll know what this is all about. I'll call her right away, but, you know, it's going to be fine. Yeah. And it was emotional. And uh, I, I think you can tell from um, my past, my dad was, was a kid who had no, his family had no money. Uh, he, his father worked in the, as, a, as, a, as a cutter in, in tip-top tailors. And uh, my grandmother used to, used to do work on people's, you know, cleaning people's houses to get through the depression. So it was not a wealthy family. And my dad was a very bright student, went to Jarvis Collegiate, and then he went to U of T and went to, you know, did graduate work on a scholarship. Everything he did was on a scholarship. And so when he uh, joined the Foreign Service, it was an incredible opportunity for him. And he did, you know, he was great. He did great at it. And he loved the UN job. He did the UN job in Geneva, and he did the UN job in New York. And I remember we, you know, he really, really loved those jobs. And so for me to be able to kind of come in at this stage of my life, which is older than when he was taking them on, um, was an incredible opportunity. So I, I felt really proud, but I also felt that a lot of my own skill set and what I learned as a politician and learned about public policy and learned about human rights and uh, would help me in in uh, uh, providing leadership here in New York. And I must say, it, it's proven to be the case. It's been a wonderful um, opportunity uh, for me and Arlene to, to be here. We came into the city in the middle of COVID, which was not mm. this wonderful time to <laughs> come. Yeah. Uh, you know, New York was the epicenter of, uh, of COVID at the beginning of the of the outbreak, or one of the, one of the main ones. Um, but as time went on, I, I became more and more comfortable doing the job, thinking about it. And you remember when I talked to you a little bit before about, you know, how I was never really sure that, that, that provincial politics was, was uh, you know, was my natural home. I really felt uh, coming into New York and coming into this job, this is, this is, <laughs> this is something I can do uh, and really felt good about it. And um uh, have have really appreciated the opportunity to uh, to do it, and uh, now that I'm in my third year, I'm I'm, I'm uh, we're we're going at it on a number of fronts and working very hard. It's it's very enjoyable. Well, it's so clearly an excellent use of all your past experience and the mix of your skills. So it's great to hear that you're enjoying it as well. I want to ask about your life in New York City, if I may. I was just there with my wife. We introduced our 15 year old to a city that it's unlike any other in the world. I went for a little a little walk to clear my head from all the sightseeing, and by accident, I ended up right in front of the United Nations. It's a very impressive complex. We love on this podcast going behind the scenes. What is a typical day like in the life of Ambassador Bob Ray? 
Uh, well, it, it starts uh, fairly early. Um, I don't like to do breakfast meetings if I can avoid them. Uh, some, of the, some, some people like to do breakfast meetings. I'm not a big fan of that. So I breakfast at home and then come down to the office. We, the office is about three blocks from the UN building. Usually the day starts with a with the meeting with my staff or with members of my staff to sort of start the day, clear the air. What are we doing? What's the what's the routine? And then usually at ten, which is when the UN meetings start, we um, go head over to the UN building or to in this day and age to another meeting, which could be a virtual meeting or an in person meeting. I'm just going to reach for my schedule. For you know the next little while, and I'll give you some typical typical days. That's great. This is Thursday, the real Thursday, Thursday is <laughs> Thursday is is office day, so we yeah. had our staff our full staff meeting this morning. Um, after this is over, I have a call with the U.S. ambassador to talk about a couple of issues that we're facing together. I haven't I do this quite often. I have an in person meeting with a young person who's gotten in touch with me who wants to talk about. Uh, how they could get involved in the UN or diplomacy or something. From my old days as a teacher, I spent a lot of time with trying to talk to younger people, encouraging them to uh, keep going and take an interest in, in these things. I'm doing a meeting of what's called a fireside chat with the Canadian manufacturers and exporters, which will be a, a discussion about Canadian foreign policy and what's happening in the global economy, which they've asked me to do. I'm having lunch with, uh, with an, a fellow ambassador, uh, I have a meeting on Haiti in the afternoon. Uh, I have a meeting on the Middle East in the afternoon. I then go into two receptions, one uh, for the gender champ champions of the UN with the Swiss uh, ambassador and another uh, dinner hosted by the uh, ambassador from Mexico. So that's a full that's a full day. <laughs> I, I don't uh, ask I don't have to ask what keeps you young. It starts. Starts at uh, starts at sort of seven thirty and ends at around nine thirty. Well, that is a full day, and I have to ask you, to the average Andrew, when I'm seeing the United Nations, it's really just on TV, and I see a shot of the, I guess it's the General Assembly. I yeah. want to ask you, for the typical Canadian, how does uh, what we see on the TV news does that reflect the actual work being done by the United Nations, or more specifically by you, our ambassador, or is most of your work done behind the scenes? Well, I think most of the UN's work is, is, is not even, I wouldn't say it's behind the scenes, but the, the, U, the General Assembly and the Security Council, which are the two main public bodies which people see, are really just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, uh, the General Assembly is a place where uh, countries come to, to debate resolutions and to debate issues. Uh, and, uh, I mean, without diminishing it at all, you say, well, that's important because communication is important. So I've been able to give some speeches in the at the UN about Ukraine and about about the Uyghur situation, about human rights in Iran and in, in Afghanistan and many other places. And I think that's important. I think it's important for us to be able to communicate uh, what our positions are and what our views are. Uh, and the Security Council is kind of stuck because the the Russians and the Chinese are using their vetoes these days, so it's getting harder to get real decisions out from the Security Council on on what what we need to do in a number of areas. But I would say that I don't know eighty five ninety percent of what I do is not giving speeches. Uh, mm. It's it's really dealing with particular issues. I mentioned Haiti. Um, I've been very involved the last six weeks uh, traveling to Haiti myself. Uh, Meeting with our own government, meeting with the UN, meeting with uh, other other countries uh, down in Washington last week, uh, we're very actively pursuing what uh, some steps we are we're all going to need to take when we look at uh, the Haiti situation, and trying to become as informed as I can about it, um, and and that takes that takes up you know a lot of time, and then you multiply that by the number of other situations, that's just me, but the UN. Uh, you've got the United Nations Development Program. You've got the United Nations uh, Children's Work on in UNICEF. You've got the work of the agencies that are based here in New York. The work of the agencies that are based in Geneva and in Nairobi and other parts of the world. 
And, and that's really where, frankly, the money gets spent and where the work gets done. So we have a, a, a Canadian who's in charge of the UN operation in uh, Ukraine. And she is working flat out to ensure that the humanitarian needs of the people of Ukraine are being met and that we're, we're getting to the root of, of, of what needs to be done to save lives and to help people who are being affected by, uh, by bombing. And she's typical of a senior UN official who's working in very, very difficult circumstances. If you're working running a refugee camp, if you're working uh, trying to get assistance to uh, very, very troubled areas. The World Food Program, which is based in Rome, uh, is probably one of the best known agencies of the UN because it's delivering food around the world. Uh, where and, and because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's, there's a food shortage um, and, and great difficulty in many, many countries. So that's, that's the huge work of the UN. Canada spends about a billion and a half giving money directly to the UN uh, every year. But our what we pay to the General Assembly and the Security Council is about 80, 80 million. It's not, it's nowhere near uh, the overall commitment that we make to the UN organization. And we are, as a result of what we do, um, we're the seventh largest donor to the United Nations. Uh, all of the UN, not just the peacekeeping, or we're, we're the seventh largest donor to the whole the whole uh, organization, all the work that's done in the field. And that's something of which we can be very proud, I think, as Canadians. Well, I think, Bob, you talk about the issues in Haiti, the conflict in the Ukraine, which, of course, has global economic implications. we got a climate disaster. We've got continued gender inequality. Maybe you can make a comment about the realities and complexity of the United Nations. I mean, it's almost mind-boggling how many different issues there are. How do you focus on certain ones, and, and I guess with a lens of from the Canadian perspective? Well, well, first of all, I, I, I do have an obligation to do what I'm told. <laughs> the government says this is, this, this is, this is a priority, Mr. Ray. Uh, I say, okay, then it's my priority. Um, but uh, the ministers and the prime minister uh, take a keen interest in this. Um, both uh, Minister Sajjan and uh, Minister Jolie, who are my who, who speak to me the most often, Minister Gilboa on the environmental side is, is, very, is very active. Uh, Minister Anand on the defense side on peacekeeping is very, very active. So I work with all of them. Uh, sometimes the issues impose themselves on you. Uh, mm -hmm. Something happens and so you have to respond. And then other times we have longer term issues that, we're, that we are um, preoccupied with as Canadians. Um, the development issues, particularly in Africa, are are critical and have long been a key interest of Canada's. And uh, the issue of human rights, uh, you mentioned gender equality, the, the issue of uh, women's equality around the world is is a key issue. So it's, if you like, it's women and children first, as we mm -hmm. look at our obligations on the development side. Uh, and then it's dealing with the political crises. And the long, the the contextual crises, like climate change, which are really um, dominating our agenda. I guess uh, you've answered it a bit, but if I may ask you, what should Canadians look for or expect from the United Nations over the next year? Well, we're gonna. I, I mean, it's really gonna be up to the to the to the governments of the world to decide what the UN is going to be up to. Um, the UN's capacity is limited entirely by what governments are prepared to let it do. Um, and I think this is one of the frustrations that people work at the, working at the UN feel very strongly is there's much more they would like to be able to do, but they simply don't have the money to do it. And as opposed to governments, the UN can't borrow. The UN doesn't, doesn't run a, it has a bank account, but it doesn't, <laughs> It doesn't have an overdraft on the bank account. <laughs> yeah, it, it has to pay from its its day to day resources, and so it's it's managing money very carefully. It has to do that because they they're not allowed to. They don't issue bonds or or uh, you know go on the bond market or borrow money. Uh, so they're they're spending what they have, and there's and that is a 
is a huge financial discipline, uh, but it also means that a lot of times things simply don't get done which should get done uh, because they don't have the capacity that uh, a nation state has. Um, I think the I think the UN is going to be preoccupied with pretty much what I've described, um, really trying to uh, push forward on the climate change agenda, which I know the Secretary General personally feels very strongly about. And as you know, it's really hard to do that in the midst of a global recession. Canadian governments of all stripes have difficulty really keeping up the focus on the environment when it's the jobs agenda that becomes the most important. I mean, jobs are always important, but sometimes the economy is going well and sometimes it's not. When it's not, it's harder to get people to focus on the environmental question. The global recession, I think, will be a major issue for the UN. The fact that many governments are are on the edge of bankruptcy and are going to have to restructure their finances and are going through internally some great difficulty. Uh, on the social economic side, a lot of humanitarian issues, the number of refugees is higher than ever before. So that's going to be a big concern. And then you've got the unpredictable conflicts, the conflicts that arise. And when they erupt, they become more more difficult to solve. So that's something that's uh, very much on on, uh, on our agenda, never goes away. Well, there's certainly no shortage of things on your plate at all times. <laughs> I have to, on a lighter note, if I want to ask you about stereotypes of Canadians. Every time I go down to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, I'm always asked two questions. What hockey team do I play for? And do I know Fred from Canada? I have to ask for you, Ambassador Bob Ray, when you're first introduced to a foreign dignitary, maybe from the other side of the world, they don't know that much. When you're first introduced from Canada, what's the, do they ask you about Drake or maple syrup or winter? What's the first thing they ask you about? All of the above. Uh, uh, but I, I find what's interesting is that at, at our level, uh, People are pretty well informed. I mean, they're pretty knowledgeable about Canada. And one of the one of the things that people will ask is, uh, uh, how can I get to Canada to visit my my son or daughter who's in university? An incredible number of of, of diplomats and others that I've met uh, send their kids to university in Canada because they like they they think it's a great system and they they uh, it, it's 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 something they want to do. And so there's very strong connections. Um, and um, I would say they're they're more aware of the Raptors than they are of the Maple Leafs. Whoa, <laughs> that's that's significant. And they're starting to learn about our soccer team too. So that's that's coming on. That's With great. The World Cup coming up. Well, listen. Uh, there's so much on the internet that is real, not real, and I always try to get right to the source. So if you don't mind, I got a few for you here of what we call internet true or false. Bob Ray's first job was while living in Washington, and your dad was a diplomat. You had a paper route delivering the Evening Star newspaper to customers, including none other than Vice President Richard Nixon. Internet true or false? True. <laughs> was, was he a good tipper? No, he was not. <laughs> I'll leave it there for now. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> Bob Ray invited Frank Zappa to play at U of T's Convocation Hall and personally ended up having to deal with a big cleanup job. Internet true or false? True. <laughs> they, put, they put shaving cream. They did the concert at Convocation Hall. As you know, there's a big organ with huge organ pipes at the back, at the sort of where the podium is in the hall. And they insisted on spraying shaving cream all into the holes, the, the, you know, the holes in the pipes. And it was the cleanup of the of of of, of, of the organ it was quite an operation. So, yeah, we we were that was that was that was a fun, uh, it was funny, but it was also not so funny because we, we had to find a lot of money to deal with that. <laughs> that is no good. In the 1995 Ontario general election for the riding of York South, Bob Ray had to compete against and defeat jazz legend Haygood Hardy. Internet true or false? True, and Haygood remained a very good friend. Uh, Haygood and my uncle Jackie were good friends. My my father and sister and uncle were part of a vaudeville troupe called the Little Rays of Sunshine, and my uncle Jackie stayed in show business uh, after his Air Force career, and so he was uh, very friendly with Haygood, uh, and I became very friendly with Haygood, and um, he was a, a fine a fine man. 
Well, you just answered my next one, which was if your late uncle Jackie Ray had been indeed the host of his own show, The Jackie Ray Show, on CBC, as well as on British television. And that's obviously true as well. True. Yeah, Jackie was a... And he, and he ended up coming back to Canada after being in the UK for a few years and, and uh, set up the Spitfire Band, which was a terrific big band that played in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you know, right through. It was, it was a great, great bunch of people. At a Rhodes Scholar alumni event, you, Bob Ray, were approached by fellow Rhodes Scholar alumni, former President Bill Clinton. Internet, true or false? True. Uh, he looked at me, the president looked at me and said, um, we know each other. I said, yes, sir. We, <laughs> we were, looked a little different at that time, sir, but we, but we were both. He was a year ahead of me at Oxford, but uh, we, he, did, he did claim to recognize me. But I think the president did that with a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> He's smooth. 50% of people Googling you, Bob Ray, inadvertently end up on a web page for American comedy duo Bob <laughs> and Ray. Internet true or false? I don't know if that's true, but I do know that I'm a huge fan of Bob and Ray. Uh, and I highly commend to you, Andrew, the uh, interview that they did about the Komodo dragon, which is one of the funniest takeoffs about an interview that's given by the guy who doesn't listen to the person who's giving the answers. Uh, it's a very funny sketch. And so, of course, is the Slow Talkers of America, which is one of my favorites. But, so I don't know if it's true or that other people find Bob and Raymond. They, they might. I got one last one for you. There is a photo circulating on the Internet of Bob Ray and comedian Rick Mercer skinny dipping. Was this photo photoshopped or did it actually occur? Well, I think Canadians know that it, it did occur. <laughs> the video is there. You can watch the YouTube if you like. Uh, a couple of my colleagues... When I when they said they said is that actually you in that picture I said yes it's me they said did you actually do, did, you, did you jump in the lake I said yes I did they said how did you how did you do that like how how, how does your government let you do that I said well this actually wasn't a decision of the government at the time it was it was a personal choice that I made but I think nothing could be more Canadian than skinny dipping absolutely absolutely. You've been so generous with your time. If you can put up with one last story, I do want to, because you gave me a, 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 a wink when I introduced you. My late father, there were two people. You had to stop what you're doing in the house if these two people started talking. And you probably wanted to know who the other one was. And that was Steve Pakin. So when TVO's The Agenda comes on, you got to stop what you're doing and listen to that. And when Bob Ray comes on, my dad just laid down the law. Everything stops. If you can put up with one more story, I have because it's so surreal. In the days leading up to this, I kept talking. I was so excited. I'm going to be talking to Bob Ray, and I'm telling my wife, Vicky, oh, Bob Ray did this, and Bob Ray did that. She said, I don't want to hear another word about Bob Ray. We're going to distract you from your, your, uh, your meeting with him. I surprised you. Last night, she got me tickets to the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, the TSO. It was the first night of the Pops season. And we went out and we weren't going to have any Bob Ray talk or any of this talk about my great introduction about how he's second smartest and Steve Pakin's first. We're not going to talk about any of that. I am not making this up. In my section, three rows behind me was Steve Pakin. <laughs> so I'm freaking out. Am I supposed to go tell him this great introduction I have? I'm going to meet Bob Ray. I'm going to tell him all about this great introduction. And my wife tells me again, you got to calm down. you got to stop even thinking about this. I say, I'm going to distract myself again. I pick up the program. I'm going to read all about tonight. After I read about all the musicians playing at the Pops, right under is, I think you know what's coming, there's a section, Honorary Musicians, and the first name on that list, Bob Ray. So you saved, apparently, the 1999-2000 TSO season by getting involved in a labor dispute they were having. I excitedly told my wife this. And that's how I ended up sleeping on the couch last night. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, I did. I did get very heavily. I was. I was chairman of the conservatory, and a number of people came to see me from the symphony, saying they had a real problem. It was a bigger financial problem than just the the labor issue. It was uh, a major financial problem. So I got involved uh, in helping them to sort that out. It, it was uh, very rewarding work, and uh, many of the musicians were uh, very grateful for. What happened, and it was people. You know, I was glad to do it, and uh, so I'm. 
I'm glad you enjoyed the symphony. And uh, and I I also like Steve Pinkin, and I think he's a pretty smart guy, too. Well, you two are A and B, and my late father, I he was my, my A, so uh, it's great to hear. I want to thank you again so much for your time today, and as we close up, where can we best follow you and everything you're working on on behalf of our country of Canada? Probably the best way to follow me is on Twitter, um, at BobRay48. Uh, that's, uh, that's where I I do uh, I publish a, something out every almost every day, and uh, that'll also connect you up to speeches that I've been giving or things that have been going on at the UN. Great. Well, again, I want to thank you for your time. It's It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. Good to talk to you. Take care. And to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast, powered by the Henderson Brewing Company. And on behalf of Ambassador Bob Ray, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four Kids Flashback.